Thank you. Good to be back with you guys. I have uh, not been in church for two weeks, which is a weird thing for me. Like, I can't remember the last time that I missed two weeks in a row of church. So, kind of like detoxing right now. And, um, like, this this is good. It's good to be in the fellowship of the saints and just familiar faces and to be doing what we're doing, getting to pray with each other. We're going to eat with each other, um, getting to, you know, fellowship with each other, getting into the word together. And so, um, this is a neat thing. I got to, we got to go last week to, um, actually Washington state, but we stayed in Astoria and there was a, a young man that, that, um, basically I had in youth group since he was, you know, about that tall. Um, and we always had this agreement that that young man is now this tall. Um, he's, he's 28, but we had this agreement that he couldn't, um, he couldn't get married till he found a woman that, you know, loved the Lord more than he did. Um, and he, and he waited, um, you know, a long time and, and found her. And so I had the opportunity to go up and, and do this wedding for him last week. And, and help you know hand this guy off to this wonderful lady that loves the Lord and so uh, that's where we were but we missed you guys we missed being here and we're sick of driving so we're not gonna drive for a while not gonna be driving for a while right dear all right uh, we're still in Peter we're moving right through Peter we're in chapter 4 of the book of first Peter if you got a Bible grab it turn there if you're watching from home we we welcome you first Peter chapter 4 and um, we're dealing with the ongoing theme. I mean, there's been an ongoing theme through this book that's, um, that's, that's not, hard to, not hard to hit, not hard to see, um, and that is how the Christian is to live in a hostile and oppositional world. I mean, that's, that's basically been the banner over this entire book. And in this section today, uh, Peter's gonna be speaking specifically to how we are to do that in light of the fact that everything, all things that you and I know right now are coming to an end. Um, this is important for you and I to remember because there is a lot of fear going on in the church. There's a lot of anxiety going on in the church. There, there are a lot of people that are not, a lot of Christians right now that are not at peace and are not at rest inside the church. And the reason is because they are fixated on what's going on in the world around us and the events going on in the world around us. We need to remember that all these things that are going on right now are coming to an end. They're not always gonna be here. Things are not always gonna go on the way that they're going on right now. And this is why you and I have a hope and a message to share with that world is because it's not always gonna go on this way. And so this is what Peter's gonna talk about today. And uh, this is what we're gonna look at today. We're gonna read the text, 1 Peter chapter four. Uh, we're gonna take an entire two verses um, because that's how I do things. I, I, I really should be taking verses seven through 11 because those all fit together. Um, they're, they're all part of uh, the same thought, uh, but I, I just couldn't do it. I'm looking at it and I'm like, I'm gonna end up um, just not doing it any justice if I try to take all these verses. So we're going we're gonna to do seven and eight. You'll get the rest of it. You'll get part two um, next week. So let's go ahead and read those. First Peter chapter four, verse seven, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Um, do you know already right now what you're going to do tomorrow? Because I do. 
Like I have, a, I have a pretty good idea of what my Monday looks like. You guys probably have a pretty good idea of what your Monday looks like. You probably already have plans or appointments. Some of you are going to work. You know what that looks like, right? Um, my day um, is going to be something like, M- Mondays are kind of my day off as a pastor. Um, Saturdays are not um, a day that a pastor can take off. Um, and Sundays are not a day that a pastor can take off. So it's, it's kind of, Monday's kind of my day off. So I know that I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, throw myself out of bed somewhere between seven and 7.30 tomorrow, right? And then I'm probably gonna sit down and watch the craziness of the animals in our backyard because my wife has two big, really fat bunny rabbits um, that come out in the morning. And, and, um, and then two dogs that like to mess with the bunny rabbits and then a cat. And so like, I'll sit and look out the window and watch all this go down. Um, and then eventually um, I'm gonna go for three strips of bacon and a piece of toast, which with way too much butter on it. So uh, uh, Brent might not be the only one in for open heart surgery soon. It might be me soon, um, but that's just what it looks like. And then I'm probably gonna go around 10 and sit with an older couple in the church. This guy has a limited amount of time to live and so I'm, I'm gonna go and sit with these guys and visit with this guy. And then I don't know, I'm gonna come home and I'm gonna relax, maybe I'm gonna take a nap. I know I'm gonna watch a playoff game tomorrow night um, because playoff hockey just started and I know that none of you care about hockey because you're Gorgonians, but I do, I like hockey and the playoffs are great. So like that's probably what's gonna happen. Like I've already played this through in my head, like this is probably um, what my, um, Monday is going to look at, and, and I assume that that's probably going to happen. I assume that that's um, pretty realistic, um, al- almost as if it's a done deal, um, because you and I have lived through a ton of tomorrows already. We assume that our tomorrows are just going to keep stacking up because they always have, until um, one day they don't. Uh, it's generally true And I know this is true for Pastor Brent right now. It's been basically proven that many people don't really start living until they find out that they're dying. Then they do the things that they've always wanted to do. They say the things that they've always wanted to say to the people that they've wanted to say them to. Um, I know that this is true for him. When he found out he was going in, he had a moment of clarity where he sat down and he started writing letters to his kids, to his wife. It's unfortunate that it takes us something like that to say the things that we wanna say, to to say the things that we should say to each other every day. But it, it typically does, that's just the way it is. That's when we actually start living the way that we've always wanted to live is when we know that that life um, is about to be done. And it's because of urgency and it's because of desperation, and it's because of inevitability, and it's because of imminency. Have you guys ever heard that word before? When something is imminent, means that something is forthcoming, it's impending, it's nearing. And the truth is that you and I need to be woken up out of our slumber of the assumed and the expected before we really start to push the limits of what matters most in our lives, and the lives of the people around us. And this is really what Peter is going to do with the church, with us, in this section that we're reading right here. He's wanting to snap us out of presuming upon tomorrow as if we have a ton of them left. 
He's snapping them, he's snapping us out of our slumber of the typical and the mundane, the expected by proclaiming, by heralding these eight words. The end of all things is at hand. Um, does that get your attention? Because that, that gets my attention. When I, my eyes go to this page and I've been reading all these other words and then all of a sudden you get to seven and it goes, the end of all things is at hand, period. It's like, boom. Like we just went up a step. We just went up a notch. Like this is a big statement. It gets my mind going. And it, 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 it does it because it snaps me out of my, pre, my, my presumption upon tomorrow, upon next week, upon next month, upon next Christmas. And by snapping me out, I mean that it has a direct impact on how I'm living now, in the moment. It makes me question some things as far as my, my living. It makes real to me that just because today used to be yesterday's tomorrow doesn't guarantee that they will keep piling up like that. I had a brother, we had a Friday night Bible study for years at our house. And um, a lot of you know him because he goes to the other location. His name is Andrew Walls. He's actually a deacon. And, and when him and his wife were really young before they had kids, they were coming to our Friday night Bible study. And every week we'd get together and we'd have this just wonderful time in the word, wonderful time of fellowship. Sometimes people wouldn't leave till 2, 3 in the morning. Like that's how in, insanely awesome this time of fellowship was. And when they would go to leave Bible study on Friday nights, I would walk them to the door to see them out. And he'd start walking away and I'd be like, see you next Friday, dude. And, and he would turn and he would go, Lord willing. And he used to make me mad. He used to be like, just once, dude, just say like, yeah, for sure. Of course. I'll see you next Friday. But he wouldn't do that. Like he actually believed what James says in the book of James about tomorrow. You know what I mean? And so like he would always like um, uh, make others aware of that too. That, that, oh, there's only one in charge and it's not you and your plans. It's the Lord, right? And it used to just like completely upset me. And this dude still does it to this day. Like actually next time you guys see him, if you're up there, do that to him. Go up to him and be like, see you next Sunday, and see how he responds. He'll probably, he'll probably do that. And, and, and basically, P Peter's just stirring us here to be now-minded. That's all Andrew was doing by doing that. It's like, the only thing we have guaranteed is right now. We are to be now-minded. Peter wants us to be now-minded, not tomorrow-minded. He wants us to have this mind now. He wants us to have these practices that he's going to go into about us now. He wants us to live this out now. He wants us to participate and walk in that which matters most now. And he does that with this statement, the end of all things is at hand. Now, there's a problem with what Peter says here in these eight words. Um, and that is that he said them 2,000 years ago. That's the problem. Um, do you know how many tomorrows that is? That is, I had to look this up. I didn't try to calculate it in my brain. 730,000 sunrises and sunsets, tomorrows, since Peter said the words, the end of all things are at hand. And if he said this with all urgency and honesty and seriousness to the church 2,000 years ago, 
it's easy to think that it must not be all that urgent because we've had 2,000 years worth of tomorrow since. And counting. So what gives? What does Peter mean? What is the word of God intending for us in this statement? How should we take this? Jesus makes basically the same statement impending statement in Revelation chapter 22 where he says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Sounds a lot the same way. Like this thing's at the door. I am on the doorstep. So what's up? Were they lying? Were they wrong? Is the Bible wrong? Because a lot of people will use this to say that it is. When we read our scriptures as a whole, we are able to come to the conclusion that their meaning in these imminent statements are speaking to a historical time period. A historical time period. That they are in fact living in the final stage of redemptive history, a.k.a. the last days. You and I are living in a final stage of redemptive history right now. We call it the church age. This is the final age, stage, epoch, whatever word you want to use for it, which is code for the last days. It's an actual historical time period. Biblically, the last days is marked by that stage or time period beginning with the first coming of Jesus into the world and ending with the second coming of Jesus into the world, his return, which is the next main final event on the schedule. Thus, the end of all things is at hand means that we, the church, are living in the last days of redemptive history. And Peter was too when he said these words. Which means that everything that is going to be done regarding the redemption of sinful man to a holy God is being done right now, in this age, in this stage. That the gospel will go throughout the earth and then the end will come. In other words, there's a historic redemptive roll call that's being performed every single day right now. Do you guys realize that? That's what's going on. That's why Christ has not yet returned. It's because he is actually bringing in the bodies to match the names that are on the ledger for eternal life. Every single day all over the world. This is the period of time that, that we have a privilege to live in. And this is the last days. That's what that is. This is the last thing that is going to happen before the culmination of all things and Christ coming back. The thing is that it just seems to go on and on and on. Tomorrows continue to pile up and pile up and pile up. This is one of the primary reasons why there are mockers and scoffers of the Bible and of the Christian faith that say, where is he? If he is real, he'd have shown himself by now. He'd have returned by now. He'd be doing something obvious by now. The first helpful thing for us to remember when it comes to this kind of thinking is that none of the New Testament writers, including Peter, are experts on the day and the hour. None of them. Bible makes that clear. That's God's business, not man's, the day and the hour. It's also very helpful for us to remember other words which Peter speaks, like that which he goes on to say in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, 
where he says, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. In, in other words, God doesn't measure time the way that you and I measure time, even though he's instituted time into his creation. He doesn't measure quickness the way that you and I measure quickness. But what's more interesting about that text which Peter, in which Peter makes that statement is why Peter is making that statement, which just so happens to be for the very reason that we're talking about it right now. It is a text in 2 Peter 3 in which he's actually giving a defense to those who will come mocking and scoffing at us because Jesus has not returned. Peter is responding to a people who are attacking Jesus' absence as a reason not to believe. Where is the promise of his return, they say? For things keep going on the way that they've always gone on since the world was first created. It's those guys that he's, that he's answering to. And Peter responds to them by saying, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Again, our quickness isn't his quickness. Our slowness isn't his slowness. But he is patient towards you. There's a definite article. Peter's speaking towards a, a specific, definite group of people. You. Do you know who he's talking to in the book of 2 Peter? Same people he's talking to here. The church. Believers. And then he says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come or reach repentance. That's the full statement or answer that he has for the mocker or the scoffer okay in other words Jesus is patient patient in his return so that the fullness of his elect you and me his church his remnant his bride <clears throat> those whose names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world can come to a saving knowledge of him when everybody who's been placed on the guest list are present and accounted for in Christ, the party's going to start. That's what's going on right now. The trumpet will blast and the Lord will descend. And it's all going to go down. Okay? I was born 47 years ago. What if the Lord had come back 48 years ago? You ever thought about that? I think about that all the time. Like, is that a possibility? And this is what Peter's telling us here about the Lord not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Is if your name is written in his life book, his ledger, he's going to make sure that you come about, that you are born, that you are sustained for a while, that you hear the gospel, that you receive the gospel so that you are brought into eternal relationship with him. He's going to see to that. He's going to make sure that's happening. And that is why history continues to roll on and roll on and unfold and unfold. It's because he's gonna make sure that he doesn't lose any of that which he's intended from eternity past to save. You did not know him before you were born, but you need to know that he knew you he fully knew who you were before the foundations of the world. He knew who you were before your mom existed. He knew you. And he knew you as his. And those are the ones that he's going to make sure all come in. All are present and accounted for before he comes back and finishes business. It's a pretty awesome thought. 
It's a pretty awesome thought. This is why the Lord waits. And praise God that he does, right? When you look at it that way, praise God that, that when Peter said this 2,000 years ago, he didn't come back the next week. Praise God that you and I came into existence and the, and the millions and millions of other people around the world have come to a saving knowledge of, of Jesus Christ, right? Every day that Jesus waits is a day that you and I have work to do. It's a day where somebody else needs to hear his voice and live. And so I want to make sure that we understand what that means that he waits, which I think I'm actually going to talk about here in a minute if I just shut up and stick with my notes. All right. Now that we've talked about what this is, the end of all things is at hand, let's talk about what this does. And I think this is where I started to go just now. Okay. Because I want us to notice that Peter's thought process concerning the imminent return of Christ is not that we should sit on our hands and stare into heaven and twiddle our thumbs, like do nothing, okay? Like we got our ticket, stick our ticket in our pocket and just wait until he comes, just hang out. But rather Peter's conclusion for us Christians, knowing that the next main event is the return of our Lord to this earth is to be all the more active in Christian things all the more active, all the more active in things that make us Christ followers, all the more active in prayer and love and hospitality and walking in our giftings. These are all the things that he's gonna go through right here in these verses. We should be more active in these things. We shouldn't be gathering together like this less when it's convenient. It should be more. We should be finding more reasons, putting ourselves in more positions in the middle of, of, of opportunities to love and to serve and to pour out and to encourage and to pray for each other, not less. This is not the time for you, me, and Jesus on a, on a lake, okay, or on a boat. This is the time for the saints, the fellowship of believers, the assembly of the elect to come together all the more as we see the day approaching. All the more as things tighten up. I need you that much more in these days ahead, and you need me that much more in these days ahead. It's time for the body of Christ to come together, to tighten up. So we should be more active in all of these things. The knowledge of um, an expectation of Jesus coming soon to end all things as we know them to be ought to drive us to more action, not less. It is meant to accelerate those things that make us Christian, like pedal to the metal time, right? Not cruise control. Why? Because we know full well that our tomorrows and the world's tomorrows are being depleted. There is an expiration date. There is a shelf life. So because the end of all things are at hand, how are the, we then to live? What should be our priorities? What ought we focus on above all else concerning our conduct and treatment both toward the world and to one another? Rest of verse seven. Peter starts off by saying that we should live in a perpetual state of self-control and sober-mindedness. Sober-mindedness means clear thinking. It means to have a clear mind. Why? This is the weird part. For the sake of our prayers. 
it says. For the sake of our prayers. What in the world does that mean? Well, it simply means that the state of mind that we find ourselves in directly affects our prayers. It does. It directly affects our prayers. The state of conduct that we find ourselves in directly affects our prayers. It all directly affects our spiritual state, our spiritual condition, including how much we pray, how hard we pray, what we pray for. Because what's going on inside of us, what we're feeding into us, directly affects our relationship and our communications with God, what's coming out of us. This is why we, as pastors, care so much about what you guys are spending your time around. This is why we care so much about what you're watching, about what you're listening to. And we don't, we don't, we're not creepers, all right? You, you know that. We don't like sit outside your window at night, like spying on you, seeing what you're doing, okay? Like, don't get me wrong, all right? Uh, we're weird, but we're not that weird, okay? It's not that, but it's, it's by what we hear and see coming out of you guys that tells us a lot about where you're spending your time. And it concerns us because we experience the same thing for ourselves. We know it to be true that whatever our diet is, whatever it is that we're consuming, that we're taking in, is also what's gonna end up being produced. It's what's gonna end up going out. And so we care if you guys are at home spending all your time, spending seven hours a day on Fox News and two minutes in your Bible. Like, that, that, that doesn't work. And you may be like, well, but they're the good side, right? They're the ones who are morally pro-life and, you know, against gay marriage. So those are God. It, it, it has nothing to do with, with the morality of what's going on on that side. It's, it's how they communicate what it is they're communicating. They are not communicating those things in a godly way. So it doesn't matter if they're morally correct. If they're promoting fear, if they're promoting division, if they're promoting um, hate towards another group, you are taking that in. And it matters. And you will start thinking that way. And you will start saying things like that. The more that the world gets dark, the more that we see, it's things on a dimmer switch, okay? That's biblical. And, and right now we're watching the dimmer switch go down. We're watching things get darker around us. What would you think as Christians we need more in light of that? We need more light. As we see the world get darker, we don't need to become like the world or find somebody in the world that agrees with us. We need more light. We need to go to the light source. We need more truth. We need more Jesus. We don't need more information from some media company. We need more information from what the divine has given us already. We need to bury ourselves that much more into his word. We need to immerse ourselves that much more into the timeless truths, no matter what the headlines have been throughout world history that he has already given us. We need to be sure and reminded of who it is that's over all things that we see around us in this world. Who holds the world. Nothing's a surprise to him, guys, that's going on right now. Nothing at all. All right, got to run back here again. Forgot where I was. 
Christians right now more than ever in my lifetime anyway, from what I've seen, are holding more anger and fear and worry and division than I have ever seen because they seem to be more concerned with the state of the nation than they are with the state of the kingdom. Many Christians are more concerned with the temporal rather than the eternal, with the immediate rather than the everlasting. And none of it results in the fruit of the Spirit being established in us. None of it when that's our focus. It results in internal living conditions that are opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. So how do we ensure an internal self-control, a sober mind by our consumption, by our diet, by what we focus on? And what is it that the child of God needs more than anything as the world and the times get darker? We need, we need light. Like I said, we need Jesus. If we're spending the bulk of our time with God, what should we expect to see coming out of us? Bueller. Like, what? <laughs> One person got it. Two people got it. Um, if we're spending more and more time with God, what should we expect to see come out of us? More of him. More of him will come out of us, a.k.a. the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 tells us what those are, okay? The fruits of the Spirit of God. This is what we should see more of the more that we spend time around God. More love coming out of us. Not hate. More love. More joy. More peace, not fear. More peace. More patience. More kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control, all equating to sober thinking. This is what it looks like. This is what sober thinking looks like in the spirit. The easiest way for me to detect how I'm doing in regards to what I'm consuming is to simply look at what's coming out of me. I think we should all uh, do this personal exam, probably even once a day, to see what it is that's coming out of me. My thoughts my attitude, my actions, my outlook on life, my worldview. We should, we should take that pulse every once in a while. If in my examining of myself, I am exhibiting, I find to be exhibiting things that are contrary to these fruits of the spirit, if these are absent from what's going on in my spirit, then I am absent from where God wants me to be. It's that simple. It's not rocket science. I'm not in the right neighborhood. I've actually wandered into a bad neighborhood and I need to go back home. If I'm not focusing with self-control and a sober mind on that which matters most, I will find myself sleeping on the job concerning him and what he really wants from me and what he's really doing. And again, I don't think Peter's just pulling this out of a hat. I believe he's speaking firsthand very personally and humbly about this subject because this is a lesson that he also learned in the garden the night that Jesus was betrayed. A couple weeks ago when I preached and we were talking about not repaying evil for evil, I referred to uh, how Peter learned that lesson from Jesus in the garden when he went to, to try to take the life of the soldier. He was repaying evil for evil, and Jesus taught him a lesson in that. Well, there's another lesson that he learned that night in the garden concerning prayer with a sober mind, with a watchful mind, with self-control, and that is that after they were done eating, Satan steps in to Judas, 
in which Jesus walks up and says, go do what you need to do to Judas or Satan. It doesn't matter, both, okay? And so he exits, and the whole thing is set in motion, right? The main event of why Jesus came to earth, the the betrayal, the crucifixion, is all set in motion. It's going down, and Jesus knows it. So he, he leads out the other 11 to a garden called Gethsemane, and he sets them down, and he says, the main event's about to go down, so stay alert, keep watch, pay attention. I'll be right back. I'm going to go over here and pray. And he walks off, and he prays, and he comes back, and he finds them sleeping. And he wakes them up. He shakes them, and he's like, what's up? Like, I told, I told you to, like, pay attention. Like, this is serious business. Like, get up and pay attention. I'm going to go over here and pray again. He goes over a second time. He comes back. He finds them sleeping. So he repeats this, he does the same thing, he wakes him up, he, he, gives it, he gives it a third shot, three strikes, you're out. I don't know why Jesus does everything in threes, but, um, but he, did it, he did it again here. And uh, he wakes him up, he goes back over, he prays, he comes back, he finds them again sleeping. To which he says to them, sleep and take your rest later, later on, because the hour is at hand when the Son of Man is betrayed. And I believe that that. The same thing is true here in what Peter is saying to the church and what Peter is saying to us. The same significance applies. The same level of importance applies. Sleep later. Take your rest later because the hour is at hand that the Son of Man is returning. It's coming back. It's not nap time. If we find ourselves focusing on the wrong things, being consumed with the wrong things, found doing the wrong things, found wrapped up in the wrong things, we'll find ourselves to be sleeping on the job. And it almost always, in my life, begins with prayer. It begins with this vertical relationship. It begins with my communication with my Father. It will hijack us from what we should really be doing and watching for. Just as Jesus wanted them awake and clear-headed for his betrayal, Jesus wants us awake and clear-headed for his return. So for the sake of your prayers, for the sake of your communion and your worship and your fellowship and your communication with God, your peace of mind, make certain that you consume yourself with him and what he has said and what he's going to do and not with the world around you. I'm saying that to me too. Be sure to consume yourself with him and not the world around you. Look up. Then you will find and you will experience self-control and sober-mindedness, allowing you to think clearly and see clearly and pray clearly. Peter then moves on in verse 8 to kind of the granddaddy, right? I mean, he, he uses the word above all of our relationship, um, a relational focus and concern in regards to the end of all things being at hand, and that is love. And you guys hear us talk about this all the time, and it's, not, it's no secret because th- this is what the Bible talks about all the time. I mean, th- th- this, it, it is this subject of love, this thing called love, that gets the, 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 the loudest volume than anything else in the scriptures. And there's a reason for that. And Peter tells us here, above all else, keep loving one another earnestly. Earnestly. And why are we to keep loving one another earnestly? Because love covers a multitude 
of sins, of offenses, of wrongs. This actually should have been the entire sermon. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm going to keep you here late. I'm, I'm just, I just mean that there's so much to be said about this, and there's so much that needs to be said about this. Love covers a multitude of sins. In which Paul tells us, he puts it in another way, it keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't record that stuff and keep it in a drawer or a safe just to pull it out at a later time against somebody. It does away with it. There is no rap sheet when it comes to love. The first thing that we notice here is that Peter doesn't just say, just love, you know, just go love above all else. He says, love earnestly. And that word earnestly changes some stuff. It tells us how to love. And it means to love in full stride. Full stride. All out. Over the top. Exhaustively. It's actually likened, this word in the Greek, to horses that are running a race. Who, who stretch as hard as they can to get across the finish line first. So it's a picture of a horse in full gallop. Have you ever witnessed that? The power of it, the beauty of it, the sound of it. It's amazing. It holds the picture of a horse in full gallop who push their legs and their muscles to their full capacity, their full capability. It's basically to give it all that you've got. And this is kind of a buzzkill of a challenge to me, if I'm to be honest with you, because if you're like me, um, we love about the same way that we do everything else, which is on our own terms. I don't know about you, but I love on my own terms. I have ceilings. I have bars, I have standards. Even to this day, walking with the Lord for 30 years, I, I, I still have um, this, this limited uh, um, uh, willingness in how far I go with my love towards others. I'm probably the only one in here. But that's, that's love on my terms. I still do it very much on my, on my own terms. And Peter's not leaving this open for our own terms and interpretation. He's saying that as we see the final day approaching, we are to love each other with everything we've got. Everything we've got. We are to love deeper. We are to love harder. We are to love crazier with no restraint. We are to tax ourselves in doing it so as to exhaust ourselves and to push ourselves to the limits continually with it. And when we do, it will do this, this thing. And that thing is cover a multitude of sins. He pulls this from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. When somebody sins against us, we have two options. Two, that's all I'm giving you. We can bury it or we can expose it. We can kill it or we can keep it alive. These are our basic options when somebody sins against us with what we do with that. And guess which one we're typically really good at? At least me. I'm a married man. So the question we must ask is this, how in the world can we possibly walk in this? How can we possibly achieve this kind of love? How can we pull this off, right? 
How is it even possible that we can possess the capability of walking in this kind of love, this earnest love that covers sin rather than records it? And the only possible answer, the only possibility of living with such a love is by knowing who we possess and why we possess him. Um, All you ever hear, this is why, all that you ever hear out of us, pastors at the door, over and over and over again, is the gospel. It's because it is the gospel that changes everything. It is the gospel that makes the impossible in us possible. It is the gospel where the power is. And the more that we meditate on the gospel and the more that we center our brains and our hearts and our lives around the gospel, the more that you and I are affected are moved, are transformed, are changed, are conformed into the image of Christ. That Jesus loves us is not shallow. That is the deep end of the theological swimming pool. Amen? To know the love of Christ and experience the love of Christ is the the deep end of the theological swimming pool. That's it. That is alone what has the capability of changing people like you and I, of causing people like you and I to do something that we otherwise would never, ever choose to do or be able to do. And love is one of the biggest ones. This is why we talk about the gospel. This is why no matter where we're at in the Bible, no matter what scripture we're in, we just make a run as fast as we can to the cross. It's because everything, the solutions, the answers to everything for us as Christians in effective living has to do with us being completely and utterly lost and consumed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what motivates us. That is what transforms us. And that's why you hear it so much here at the door. So that wasn't an apology. That was just a clarification. What is it that drives me to want to walk in this kind of love? Why should I? Why should I even care? Well, it's because it's the kind of love that won me over. There's the gospel. That's why. That's why I want to walk in an earnest love that covers a multitude of sins when people wrong me and hurt me and deceive me and betray me and talk bad about me. I want to do it because someone did it for me. I want to do it because that's the kind of love that saved me. That's the kind of love that gave me life and that now lives in me. It is by me experiencing this kind of love for myself that makes me want to copy it. I want to plagiarize Jesus. As much as I can, I want to plagiarize his life. I want to do what he did. I want to share it with others. I want them to experience it too because I know that I know that I know that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. It was then that he died for me while I had a multitude of sins against him. Not after I paid back every bit of my offense, but while I was in the midst of it, he died for me. And it is this earnest, strenuous, unexhaustive love that won me over in the beginning and continues to win me over every single day. That's why I need to camp on the gospel every single day. See, I don't know if you know this, but you and I give Jesus reasons every day to break up up with us. Every day. We give Jesus reason every day to break up with us. We give Jesus reason every day to divorce us. 
Do you realize that? To say, you know what? I've gone on with you for a long time and there's no sign of, of this stuff ever stopping. So I'm just gonna cut my losses and move on. I'm gonna go find somebody else. But for him and his love, there is nobody else. It is us. We are his bride that he has chosen to fix his approval and his favor and his love upon. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his goodness and righteousness towards us. This is why he's going to wait to come back until all those names fill the ledger. Every day we give him reasons. I, I have given Jesus a million reasons not to love me, and he's not listening to any of them. What kind of love does that? What is that? That's an earnest love. That's a love that's giving it everything it's got. And I'm not Jesus, and neither are you. I'm not God, and neither are you. But because he now dwells in us, we want the same things he does. We want to be just like him. And though we will fail, we have the opportunity in these last days, all the more as we see the day approaching closer and closer and closer where it all comes to an end, to love each other earnestly. Which means the more that we tighten up in these days ahead, in these months ahead, in these years ahead, should he wait to come back, the more time that we spend together, the closer that we grow, there's more chances for us to offend each other. And the more that we offend each other, we're gonna have to tap into this earnest love so that we can love each other all the more. So that there's a multitude of sins that gets covered. So that we display Christ in our midst, one to another. This is why the gospel matters so much. If, we, if you think about this for a second, if you remove the knowledge of the gospel and Christ for you from all the words that we just read today, what would you think of that text? Be self-controlled. Just go be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Oh, and by the way, earnestly love other people because it covers a multitude of sins. Like, where would you even start? It would, it would be an impossibility for us to even try it wouldn't even make any sense because we have no we have no um we have no blueprint to look at we could because we have experienced no blueprint if it is not true that he has come and done what he's done but because we've experienced the love of christ we know what it looks like and we're able to go copy that we're able to extend that to each other not so that god will accept us but because he already has Um, I told, I'm not even going to try to go back because I completely blew everything that's there. I think um, that enough has been said. So in light of, in light of the reality that we are living in the last days, that the end of all things is at hand, we are to be more self-controlled, not less. We are to be sober-minded, meaning having a clear mind, so put your liquor away. <laughs> Don't go down to the pot shop. Don't be filling your head with that stuff, right? Don't go getting on Fox News. You know what? Just don't go getting on your kooky little sites, okay? I know, I know that some of you are going to uh, relapse at some point, like you're going to do well for a few days, and then you're going to relapse, and you're going to go back to that site. Um, like, but just watch yourself. Do me a favor this week. Just watch yourself 
if you go there, what that stirs up in you, what comes out of you after you spend your time there. Go to the Word of God. Go listen to a sermon. There's, there's so, much, so many better ways to fill yourself, okay? Getting off again. Self-control, sober-mindedness, loving each other earnestly. We should be doing this more because the days are getting less. Not doing it less, okay? And so let's find ways to do that. Let's find ways um, to give it all we got in our love for each other. We are a small church, but if we're living with this kind of love, if we're determining to live with this kind of love, it's going to make a, it's going to leave a big mark on this community. But it starts here. Lord, thank you so much for, for showing us what this kind of love looks like. In fact, thank you for showing us what all of this looks like. Thank you for showing us what self-control looks like in, in which you um, completely displayed. And what a sober mind looks like, which you completely displayed, especially in the garden, that you went to prayer rather than going crazy. Thank you for showing us what it is to love earnestly, that while we were yet sinners, you covered our sins. Thank you so much that we're able to be in your presence. Thank you so much that we're able to be in your ledger that our names are in your, in your rule book and that someday um, that book's gonna be full and complete and you're gonna gather us together and, and it's just so hard to even imagine what that time's gonna be like, what it's going to be like to finally see you face to face, to finally know you even as we are known by you. What a glorious day that's gonna be and what a great motivation for us to, to run hard right now. So Lord, empower us by your spirit to run hard right now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.